Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Blake Haxton. Blake, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So Blake is a champion athlete. Regular listeners know, I'm going to say a little bit about you before we get talking. Regular listeners know that I like to row. And I've I've rowed on my my rowing machine in my apartment a couple marathons. Uh, I've competed at the Crash Bees, which for people who know what they are, I got a ninth place in my age group. But that's nothing compared to, you were just back from the Paralympics, I think within a couple of weeks ago? Yep, just a few weeks. And now I knew about the rowing because I heard about you through, for people who know Concept2 makes the rowing machine, and there's a newsletter talking about you. And But you actually won silver in the sprint canoe, so you were in two events, two completely different things. And I didn't know what sprint canoe was, and it's also called a VA. And so it's like an outrigger canoe where... So first of all, congratulations and, and thank, thank you. you for representing this nation. And my it was a privilege. <laughs> I also it took a while and I found the footage. So I got to watch you. At first I saw the this first semifinal, you like ran away with it. And I was like, oh wow, wait, but he had the silver. So then I watched the actual medal and it was a nail biter. I mean, I knew that you got silver, but you were way behind. Yes. I mean, you were in fifth or sixth place. And I mean, you're like not out of the picture, but it's just like the front of your boat is there. Oh, yeah. Was that your strategy? It ended up being, you know, my strategy was really, you know, try and just try and pull the fastest time. And, you know, it's, which sounds obvious, but is a lot harder to do when you're, you know, not in fifth or sixth. But for me, that does mean backing off a little bit in the middle of the race. I can't, I cannot quite. I can't pull my best time going absolute maximum pressure every stroke for 200 meters or about a minute. So I back off a little in the, in the middle and then just try and maintain that speed through the finish. And I think what happened in hindsight was everyone else basically went pedal to the metal right from the start and they got ahead of me. And then I sustained my speed better through the finish and the field kind of came back to me. And that's why I snuck through. I'll put the link to that. And I, I might even download it and like edit just the parts with you in it. Cause like this, it's like a three hour, really long video, <laughs> Oh yeah, but your parts are really thrilling. And now when I read about you, it said, okay, this guy's got no legs, which for people who don't know rowing, the most people think it's arms, but it's legs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mostly it legs. And now I don't know if this is going to sound crass or, but just being an athlete without legs doesn't necessarily mean you're the type of guest I'm looking for on this podcast. But then I watched <laughs> your TEDx talk and the TEDx talk Actually, when I read about you, you weren't yet a silver medalist. So uh, you're just like a, a good athlete. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the TEDx talk, which I'll also link to, describes your experience of like one day having a bit of a leg pain and then suddenly being rushed to the hospital, waking up three months later, legs cut off from flesh-eating bacteria and nearly dying. And now, like you've heard it said before, so I'm going to, your TEDx talk, so I'm going to cut in a couple minutes. So hopefully... Afterward, I'll cut in so the audio just from the middle part of that talking about what people are going to hear is they moved you to a room, not because that was like the room to operate on you, but just to keep you alive long enough because your brother was elsewhere in town just to keep you long enough alive for him to say goodbye to you. And then they'll hear the reason why your friend Matt at Harvard packed his suit. And okay, so hopefully there'll be a little whoosh noise and then your voice will come in and we'll be back. That was my room. I would spend two months of my life in that room. That's an ICU room on one of the best hospital floors in the country. Now, the reason they moved me, just to be clear, wasn't because they thought I would survive. The reason they moved me was because my brother is a year ahead of me in school, 
And he went to school in New Jersey at the time. He was a freshman. And they wanted to give him time to get home before I died. When they were medevacking me out of Riverside, coming to Ohio State, they were rolling me on a gurney. I was completely delirious and comatose at this point. I have no recollection of this. But as they were rolling me, virtually jogging me down the hallway to get to this bus that they were going to move me to Ohio State in, my pastor is jogging alongside, holding his cell phone next to my ear, and my brother is on the other end and standing in the Philadelphia airport telling me goodbye for what he believes is the last time. My coach, who's my high school rowing coach, who I'd known for four years and was very close with, was running down the other side, and he was screaming down at me for the umpteenth time. Blake, don't quit. You will not quit. And if you think this is an excuse to get out of practice, you are dead wrong. <laughs> now, that night, and this is... Literally, my parents began planning my funeral. There was little hope. Even my doctors, who I've become very close with, wouldn't put a number on my survival. They didn't, wouldn't give me a chance because they just didn't believe there was one. But I'm not dead. <laughs> <laughs> I made it, thanks to some great doctors and a whole lot of luck. And, and now I wasn't out of the woods yet. Over the course of the next month, I was still in a coma. I have a month that I just can't remember. And... They took me to surgery over 20 times to fix various things that had gone wrong. Obviously, most of those had to do with my legs. One of the side effects of being on this heart machine, this heart and lung machine, was that it limits blood flow to your lower extremities. So little by little, starting at my feet and my shins and my knees, they had to go amputate whatever piece had died most recently, all the way up to my hip on my left leg and high above my right knee. Ultimately, I would spend 100 days in the hospital and numerous more in rehab. I also can't emphasize enough how much, yes, it directly affected my legs and my arm, but what it really did was attack the entire system. To kind of give you a picture of the differences, in February, I could bench press 240 pounds. In June, I was laying in the rehab hospital, and I could bench press two pounds. So I was a wreck, to say the least. But I've gotten a lot better. And I've also had a lot of time to think about what it was that got me through my really hard times. And in that, I think I've discovered a couple things that hopefully can help you down the line. And the first, now, before I get into them, let me just say that faith, family, and community were instrumental in helping me get through my difficult experiences. Instrumental, I can't say enough about them. But I also think we all kind of grasp how those things can play a huge role in all of our lives. So I'm not going to talk about them today. The first thing I want to talk about is how making good, loyal friendships with the right people will get you through just about anything. I want to share a couple stories to tell you about my friends and how lucky I am to have them. My first friend I'm going to tell you about is Matt. Matt grew up down the street from my brother and I. When we were kids, we lived in Connecticut, and Matt was in my brother's class, and three of us spent more time together as kids than we did with anyone else on the planet. And after we moved to Ohio, when, we were in, when my brother and I were in middle school, we've maintained very, very close friendships, and we're very close friends to this day. Matt was a freshman in Harvard at the time in March of 2009. My brother called him and said, Matt, Blake's in trouble. After he explained what that meant, I am told that Matt was walking across campus, went up to his dorm room, threw some clothes in a bag, grabbed a suit off the rack, and went to the airport and jumped on a plane for Columbus, Ohio. Now, obviously, I was out for this, but I am told my parents did not know that Matt was coming. When he got off the elevator in that building, you could have knocked my mom out with a feather. <laughs> he also was quick on his feet enough to make up a good excuse for my grandma and ask him, Matt, why'd you bring a suit? Because he didn't want to tell her he was coming to a funeral. Okay, so hopefully they've just heard it now. And 
I'm going to read to you, to them, what I wrote your agent, that I heard a message that I've never... So this is me reading from my email to your agent, Frank. I heard a message that I've never heard with such clarity and experience. I wonder if he realizes how much of it applies to stewardship in the environment. It's almost the exact message nearly everyone needs. I can't put it as well as he can, but what he shared starting around minute three of his TEDx talk of a system breaking down where most people would be ready to give up. Technology being important, but relationships, faith, support, laughter being the core of what, the, of what worked. Because I see roughly 350 million Americans and 7.9 billion humans ready to give in and accept a system breaking down. This would be our economic system, the earth, as opposed to this is me now. But then I see you living the opposite of what their resignation, you're leading a better life. I mean, certainly it sounds like it to me, and you know better than I do, but it's been almost a decade since that TEDx talk. And I, as I can, as best I can tell you, your life has improved since then. And in my book coming out next year, I quote Churchill's speeches during the Blitz. It's bad. It's going to get worse, but we'll fight on the beaches. We'll never surrender. This will be our finest hour. And I heard in your message from a decade ago, what America and I believe the world would benefit from most hearing today. And I expect that your message today is stronger from the greater experience. So I'd love to bring his message, I said to Frank, to my audience and to the extent he's interested beyond. And now, as much as I want to talk sustainability with you and life, I'm going to indulge in something I love talking about, which is world-class competition and your experience training and in that. So audience, you have to wait a second for the really good stuff, although we're going to start with some good stuff too, if that's okay with you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, First of all, thank you for the very kind words. It's much appreciated. What kind of curious, can you tell me, here's what I want to know most, because rowing is painful and perhaps you've had a different experience. No, I have not. What's the pain of like in that race, the training, being behind, being ahead in the, in the semifinals, a couple shots, you can see your face and you're like digging deep. What, how's that? Can you walk me through? Yeah. You know, I think you know, for me, it's funny. The race hurts less, I think, than, than the training. Maybe that's just the adrenaline you get in the rush and you know that it's important and you know the cameras are on and you know that this is, there's something up for grabs, right? Like there's a medal on the line. You know, you can do anything for a minute, right? There's not a whole lot of pain you can't withstand for 60 seconds. So, um, and rowing obviously is about 10 minutes, but same point, you know, you can endure that. I think pretty easily, especially on a big stage like that. But you know, for me, I've, I've learned that I, my personality is really geared toward rowing, I think. And I don't have a more fundamental explanation of it, why I've enjoyed it and why it's, why it's been good to me, but I'm kind of a sled dog. I told the coach that actually, and, you know, I'm not always pulling in the right direction, but like being a part of a team, having a weight to pull and moving somewhere is sort of inherently meaningful to me. And I haven't exactly sorted out why, but that is the case. And I found that was true in high school when I started rowing and it's been true since. And it's just been so rewarding in so many ways. And as you mentioned, my, my life has definitely improved since college. Not that I didn't enjoy my college experience and getting to do the, the TED Talk and the whole thing, but I've learned a lot more since then. And I've spent a lot of time sitting on a rowing machine. And you know, the race kind of makes it rewarding. But I think the thing that keeps me coming back or has kept me coming back is rowing of all the sports I've played, which, you know, growing up, probably like you, I played everything at some point or another. Rowing is very linear in terms of what you put in, you get out, right? I do X amount of time, X amount of meters, and I'm going to improve by Y amount. And I've really enjoyed that. I've uh, been fortunate enough to have the physiology that rewards that kind of effort. So that's been great too. But 
anyway, it's the, uh, it's a constant progress and that constant knowledge that you're going to improve if you do this the right way that I've really benefited from. And I think that's been the most meaningful thing to me over the years. I mean, as I look back now, I've, I was on the team for rowing team for seven years and I'm going to continue with the canoe team. But, you know, I spent, you know, two days for seven, eight years in rowing. And I sort of had this serene moment on the way back from Tokyo where it's like, well, that's, you know, that was the most of my twenties was spent, you know, with this huge commitment of time and energy into rowing and training. And it was not fun. It was not comfortable. It was not pleasant, uh, but I don't regret it at all. And I gave up a lot of things to make it happen, but I'm very grateful that I did. And part of it is I look back on that time and think, you know, that was well spent. I I got, I won't say I got everything out of my talent that I could, but I got, I got pretty close. And that was, that's very meaningful to me. That's very special. To me, it makes sense what you're saying. It's slightly different for me. What I get, what I get out of it, what I put into, I haven't decided to try to go for Olympic medals in rowing, but that you're seeing linear, like everything I do, I'm getting something out. And I, you didn't say it. I'm kind of curious. Had you not meddled, would it have all been worth it? Would it would that have taken away from it, or how would that change things? That's a great question. I don't. In many ways, it wouldn't have. It would have in the sense that, look, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to have meddled. I got. I mean, the the most emotional moment I had was seeing that American flag go up, and I put it there. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, there have been a lot of American flags go up in a lot of places, but I put that one up, and that was really cool. Especially after all these years, that was my first. I don't, I don't think you mentioned this. That was my first time ever on a medal stand at the international level. After all these years, that was it. So that was that was pretty cool. But in many ways, no. Um, in many ways, it it was you know it was. I'm very grateful and I'm relieved that you know not that you want to do things just to show the world you can do them, but that now I've got this indicator of the effort I put in and what I got out of it to that everyone can see and is a very honest indicator. But for me, you know, and even on the race day, that was the best time I could put up that day. And one of the things I actually enjoy about both my sports, canoe and rowing, you can't play defense. There's no, you can't get in the other guy's lane. You can't get in the other guy's boat. All you can do is go faster and hurt yourself worse. <laughs> and it's just a game of, of, you know, lactic acid chicken at that point. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like those games for whatever reason. I like those. I'm, I'm better at those I've found. So anyway, no, I don't think it would have taken away from it. I think I kind of found, you know, I knew where the bottom of the well was for me and I tried to get as close as I could. And that was, that was its own reward. If I remember right, there was one time they showed up all the names and they had ages. And I think, are you 30? And there's a 45 year old in that race. And I'm thinking he's got, you've got a lot of time to either punish yourself or achieve your, your potential. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And so, so the canoe, I think by, and I'm, I'm not positive about this, but my understanding, and again, you're absolutely right. I was the youngest guy in the finals by three years and it's, it just lends itself to being a little older and a little stronger. A lot of it's just brute strength, really. I mean, getting the boat from a dead stop up to full speed and staying there for 60 seconds, 50 seconds, whatever. It's not necessarily a young man's game. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm you know shooting for Paris now, which is three years away, and I'm tentatively hoping to at least stay through uh, Los Angeles, which is you know another seven. But I won't I won't age out before then physiologically, which is really exciting. So still got some more still got some more ahead of me. I'm thinking of some of the images I've seen of you. There's one I think if I'm right, it's like you have got some big chains on you, and you're doing dips or maybe push-ups. Yep. And there's another place where one page of you, you're listed as three foot two. And at first I thought, well, that's, oh, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's what's on the driver's license. But, uh, but no, it is kind of funny. I mean, even in training, 
you know, like I've got an adaptive seat, you know, for those of your audience that know rowing, you're done with a rolling seat that, that slides. And so I'm just bolted onto the rail and the canoe, obviously is just, you're kind of bolted. I'm actually, I got ski bindings that tie my hips down to the boat. So I'm really locked in, but in training, you know, it's close, but getting in a weight room without legs, you know, it's, it's amazing how many much, how much, like machines and, and a whole training program are based around a four-limbed, able-bodied person. So you got to be a little creative in figuring out how to add weight and things like that. And I'm just a lot lighter. So yeah, getting under a pull-up bar, you know, I've got a pull-up bar in my basement that's, I think like four and a half feet, you know, four or five feet off the ground, which looks a little preposterous, but, you know, I just sit under that and throw some more weight on to get up to what more of a, you know, the, the type of weight I need. Uh, to get the job done. So it's taken some creativity, but that's kind of been the fun of it too, to be honest with you. It certainly is like, I mean, it's hard not to look at it and think of like, it's like a puzzle. Like, how does this work? And not just physically that, but like the life. It's a great analogy. Great analogy. And actually, no, I'm also kind of curious. Okay. So in sculling, you came in 10th, if I remember right. Yep. Is that disappointing? Is that like a great show? How do you feel about that? And what was it like doing the, the heat in which you came in 10th? great question a little bit of both both disappointing and and also solid so in terms of my placement i was expecting to be about there Um, that wasn't a big surprise disappointing in the sense that you know in rio i was fourth in the same event and i actually think i'm in better shape and i'm a better athlete now than i was then but in the para sports and the paralympics in particular what they call and we don't we don't have, certainly don't have time to get it down this rabbit hole, but there's something called classification where they group people based on their disability to compete against each other. And those rules shifted from 2016 to 2021 in rowing. So I'm just, my disability is not as competitive as it used to be. And so most of the, I mean, again, I'm, I am the most biased person on earth in terms of this assessment. And I, I realized that, but it just, the, the rules sort of went against me on that one. So disappointing to not be in the medal round, uh, not be fighting for the podium, but, uh, as I've been in the past, but also I felt really good about my performance and was proud to, you know, proud of the time I put down, proud of the effort I put in. So, uh, like I say, in some sense, both. And does two events, does that slow you down or did it bring you fatigue? Did it distract you during training for two different things as opposed to one or did they complement each other? Um, you know, I think they complemented each other. They weren't terribly different. I mean, I'm not much of a sprinter in rowing, obviously being 10 minutes, it is a different training regimen. So that was an adjustment for the canoe, but you're still, you know, it's still strength and and heart and lungs and all those things. So it wasn't, you know, they weren't apples and oranges. And I was concerned going in, to be honest, if there was going to be, you know, is there interference here? What's, what's the issue? Even knowing that I, I, going in, I knew I had a better shot in the canoe than I did in rowing and rowing was first. And I thought, well, okay, I've got to row three, two Ks, you know, on consecutive days that's going to take it out of me. What's going to be the repercussions of that? But the way the schedule fell, I had three full days off between the finals and the in rowing and the heats in the canoe. And then the heat in the canoe, I had a day off after the heat to get ready for the semis and the finals. So it ended up being just about perfect. I don't think there was, I don't think I sacrificed a lot of performance anywhere, but, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I was concerned going in that that would be the case. All right. I got to go back now, switching topics to 2009 and you have some leg pain and I, you've probably told this story many, many times. I can't help but ask. Sure. Here's my understanding is you had some leg pain. You're like, Oh, no big deal. It doesn't go away. You go to the doctor and the doctor's like hospital now immediately, like get there. And you're in and out of consciousness for something like three months. And you only hear about things later of what the rest of the world was like. Everyone was, the doctors keep saying there was no chance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, you, you pretty much nailed it. 
you know, it was very disorienting there in the beginning. Cause I only, it, in hindsight, I only had the leg pain for about 48 hours before I was you know, admitted to the ICU, um, or at least admitted to the hospital in, in the grand scheme of things. And that was getting progressively worse. And as the pain was getting worse, my mental faculties were declining. So I don't have a real sharp memory of things, but um, then of course the next memory I had, which I don't know if they got cut in earlier, but it was the surgeon saying, Hey, we're going to take you to surgery and figure out what's going on with your leg. And then I am, I'm totally blank for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. And then of course I found out later and then little by little, I came out of that stupor and drug addled state and you know figured out what had happened and then what that was going to look like going forward. And it's, it's even, it was strange at the time to say the least to go from being, you know, 18, you know, spring break of senior year, perfectly healthy to everything that happened. Uh, that was strange in and of itself, but in hindsight, it's gotten even weirder because now I can, you know, I can't look at that event without looking backward through time, through, you know, two Paralympic games and graduate school and college and, and all these things where I'll say this, I think I've said it other places, but. I really feel this way that I think my story can be summarized in, from my perspective as I got really unlucky one time and I, I got the disease. I got this terrible flesh eating disease. That's every bit as bad as it sounds. And, and I, you know, I, if I could go back, I would change that. I wouldn't, wouldn't get it. I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a net positive. I wouldn't say, but on the other hand, I got really unlucky once. And then I'm probably the luckiest guy, you know, since then, I mean, the number of things that had to go right for me to, survive and then for me to get to college and then for me to you know, go on to graduate school and have a career that was fulfilling and or have a career at all and then have a job that was fulfilling and then get back into competing and then get to compete at a high level and then get a medal and then get to come on your podcast and talk about sustainability and the whole thing i mean it, it, <laughs> i'm i'm not i'm really not being facetious like this is this is amazing for me like this is so much fun that i can come on and and sort of philosophize about these things and and try and apply them to other places. I mean, that's, yeah, that's so special. It's a great experience. And, and that, you know, if you'd asked me at, you know, I don't know, 2000, you know, March, 2009 minus a week or whatever, um, what the future would hold, I would have never, you know, you'd never predict everything that's happened. It would never would have known in, in up or down. So anyway, I'm sort of in awe of that, just in awe of the, you know, the best laid plans go sideways and sometimes they go worse and sometimes they go better, but the whole thing has been just an amazing ride. And I've gotten to see, I've gotten to see a lot of the best of people, I guess, as I'm getting on my little soapbox here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of made all the difference. I mean, people that just stepped in and said, I want, I want the best for you for your own sake. And that's what I'm going to try and make manifest. Now that's something a parent would say, I would expect. Oh yeah. Friends, is it friends, was it doctors, was it random people? I mean, it was a parade of people that I would not have expected, but parents for sure. No question about that. But to your point, maybe that's not, it's by far the most impactful, but in some ways it's probably the least surprising, but siblings, friends, coaches, you name it. They all just kind of showed up and said, Hey, what, what do you need for your own needs? Not for mine. And that's why I'm here. All right. Now I got to ask, I'm going to ask one that like a place where I wouldn't expect it. So you go to spring break with your friends and you got shirts that say two and a half men. <laughs> yeah. And yours yeah, says half, right? So, yeah, they were they were like jerseys. They were numbered. And you know, I was the frat. Okay. Yeah. And I was the fraction. Now this is a supportive thing. Oh yeah. 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 My mom made the shirts. <laughs> Can you walk us through like how does it like it's funny? Yeah. I, but if you didn't say it was funny, I wouldn't say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. No, no. I well, first of all, we're just not overburdened with maturity. That's 
probably the, in case you couldn't tell already, that's not something we, we struggle with is, you know, acting our age, but I mean, so it was to give the full background is these are the exact same two guys. One of them is actually still my roommate, believe it or not. So they're, they're still, and I saw the other one last weekend to celebrate the medal. So, um, they're very much in my life. I mean, I, I have an older brother and a younger sister, so I can just say I relate to them more like siblings than I do like friends really at this point. And we were both on the rowing team. All of us were on the rowing team together in high school. And these are just two of a cast of characters, but you know, it was, and this, it wasn't as random of a joke. This was like right in the middle of when all that Charlie Sheen nonsense was going Mm -hmm. on. So um, it was, you know, it was, it was a culturally relevant thing at the time. Maybe, I don't know. In hindsight, it's, it's definitely kind of a stupid joke, but it's the kind of thing that a bunch of 21 year olds on spring break would find hilarious. And we did, Um, but it was, it was fun too. And I think it was sort of making light, not sort of, we had very much, especially the three of us gone through the whole experience together. I was actually supposed to go on spring break with those same guys, our senior year at high school and take this trip and, and have a good time. And so it didn't just, you know, they would, they would never say this, but didn't just blow up my spring. It blew up their trip too, me getting sick. And we've just made, we'd sort of made a career out of making light of that, that suffering and that tragedy. And I don't mean to, you know, make too light of these things. Like I'm not, I don't have the opinion that everything is good. If you just look at it in the right light, I do think there are objectively bad things. I think I go so far as to say there are objectively evil things in the world, but in this one, I think it's also worth keeping, putting them in their place and saying you, this doesn't get to win. And for us, I think it was very much like, ha, you know, you tried to, you know, as bad as this was, you couldn't keep, couldn't keep us down, couldn't keep us from having a good time. And, you know, we can turn this into, into a joke we can enjoy something from. So um, anyway, that's, that's the, that's maybe the, the metaphysical background of it, but I can tell you too, that's been a theme of the last 10 years is, you know, nothing is sacred. And, you know, we talked about a minute ago, I think, you know, I've one thing that I've really learned about people and about life since, um, since I got sick that I think dovetails really well with your, your point here about this story is everybody's got problems. Everybody suffers something. Everybody's got their thing, a uh, number of things, whatever it is. The difference between me and everyone else is, you, well, not everyone else, but certainly between me is mine are very obvious. You can see mine as soon as I come in a room and that doesn't make them better or worse. It just makes them a little more obvious and a little more different. And if anything, to be honest, I think it, it makes it easier for other people to help me than maybe someone who's dealing with something that isn't visible uh, to me. You know, it's pretty clear, you know, you should probably hold the door or, you know, hold the elevator or, or what, you know, whatever the case is, you know, how many people do you know that, that are going through something today or tomorrow or whatever, that no one, no one on the street's going to see the thing there, the burden they're carrying. No one's going to see the cross they bear. And so you can't see it. You can't help them. And it's one of the things that's been really, I hesitate to say rewarding, but eye-opening is, you know, I'm at first I wasn't super comfortable talking about everything that happened to me. Not that I was denying it or anything. It just felt sort of self-centered and that was a little odd. But then once I started being a little more honest and sharing with people, I found people would share with me. And it is amazing what the average person, you know, is going through that, you know, they just, aren't going to advertise. And anyway, that's been very eye-opening and has really humbled me in, in a big way because it's made it so easy. You know, if you have an interaction with somebody to think, you know what, I just don't know what this person's going through. And I just don't know what path they, they walk to get here. 
And it's, it's really changed the way I see the world. Not that I'm perfect about it. I need to improve, but that's been something that I do count as, as a blessing coming out of me getting sick. I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned a lot in that way, but, and not to, not to leave out your point, it's incredibly rewarding to me that I've gotten to learn this with my friends and with the same cast of characters. Cause we've all kind of been learning in parallel and going through this in parallel and, and seeing those things. And that's been, that's been pretty great too. It's definitely been a team effort. So, you know, to be able to, uh, to be able to struggle with the people you struggle with and the same people you can laugh about it later with that, uh, that kind of brings things full circle. So anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of how I, I view it. But the, the bottom line for me is it's just been this massively positive experience with a lot of the people I, I know, and we have, I have a depth of relationship with those people that I probably wouldn't have otherwise, which, you know, I don't know where I'd rank that in terms of things I value in my life, but it's going to be, it's going to be way up near the top. I'm going to, so I'm putting together, I think if there was a movie of you, probably the big scene would be like some tear jerking scene of like, uh, with like the color would be kind of glowing and the sun would be rising or setting and you'd have the gold or something like that. And, and, but I, I'm reading that it's the fun moments with friends and laughing and joking is, I think, I think you'd probably say, make a comedy, maybe something more like oh. something about Mary. Oh, there's no, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what it would be. It would be, I mean, and it, it, this is, this is unanimous. This is, there is a consensus opinion forming around just how ridiculous of a person I am. And we are all together. I mean, I'm not, being if there were a highlight of that movie i'll tell you what it was it was those same two guys actually although you could you could substitute other people we went uh my one of them my buddy steve has a lake house up in michigan and this was like i mean this was like a year year and a half after i got sick so like i I think it was the first time i'd left the state like basically left my house since i got sick and i just we just hopped in the car and went up to this lake house like yeah we'll figure i mean it's hardly an accessible place like yeah we'll figure it out and we go to get it making a long story short, we go to get on the beach one day and I'd never taken a wheelchair on a beach. And my, my buddy's like, yeah, you know, it'll be fine. We'll just give you a push and get plenty of momentum and it'll, it'll work. Like, yeah, sure. I'll check out. Like you certainly don't need to be a physicist to see where this is going. And so my buddy gets behind me and gets a running start behind the, pushing the wheelchair at this, at this beach on Lake Michigan. And of course, as soon as we hit the sand, the front wheels bury <laughs> six inches deep and we, I go flying and he goes, you know, head over tea kettle over the wheelchair onto me onto the beach. And that was a lesson learned all together. But I think the climax of the movie should be like these three idiots, like wow. <laughs> trying to figure out how to go through life and winding up in a pile on a beach in pain. <laughs> Because they're just not that smart. I would love to see that movie. I would love to see this movie where everyone in the audience is like, I I really want to laugh, but I can't, I I shouldn't laugh, but I have to. Everyone's kind of covering their mouth, you know, cracking. I mean, we laughed. So, you know, I'd certainly invite other people to. And then anyway, yeah. There's that scene in um, uh, Happy Gilmore or something with, um, and when he says like, oh, I can't feel anything. Like hit my leg. And they hit me. He's like, oh, that hurts. And I could see you being like, oh, this movie, you know, like at the beginning, you'd be on and so you laugh at it. And then in the middle of it, be like, I can't believe you're laughing at this. You're such a terrible person. Ah, I'm just messing with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, come on. Come on. No one around here is no one around here is that serious. And, all, you know, the other thing, too, that bears mentioning on a little more serious note, but it isn't, I'd say this is sort of important to me, is I don't think there's a good social script for me necessarily. Like, like I was the first amputee that I knew in. 18. And I, I'd like to think I would authentically want to make people comfortable and be kind and be respectful and all those things. But society's kind of weird about disability sometimes. And that's not always the easiest thing to navigate. Mm-hmm. So 
I can't tell you how many interactions I have where people are doing the exact same thing you're talking about. It's like, well, I don't really know what to say, but I don't want to be offended. And that's all very sincere. And and people really have the best intent. Although sometimes it comes out, you know, in a in an awkward or weird way. Mm-hmm. And I just think we need to get, I mean, I've learned, I think, how to get better at being gracious with people when they don't know exactly the right way to put something or they don't know how to convey something they're feeling and just kind of give them, giving them a break and not to not to draw too great of a conclusion from too small a sample size but i do think that's something we could probably get better at you know in other areas of life not just disability is trying to figure out where people are coming from and being a little more gracious you know being a little more forgiving um, i know people have been that way with me so i'm certainly certainly appreciative of it but that that's another thing i've picked up on is you know, kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt. And when you do, people understand. I mean, it's it's so cool from my perspective to see that because when people know, when people don't feel worried that they're going to say something wrong or they're going to ask an offensive question or whatever, people are just way more open. It's so much easier to build relationships that way to say, hey, you know, like crack joke, you know, and even if it's not a funny joke, it doesn't really matter. Like, you let it rip. This is this is me and, and you know, you're going to, what you see is what you get. And I've built a lot of really great friendships that way. And it's, it's added a lot. It's really enriched my life. So uh, to your point, um, laugh away, you know, have the honest conversation, risk saying something a little offensive. I think we'd all be a little better off for it. But yeah, to, to your point, comedy, not a tragedy. Well, when you, get to, when you get the chance, if you're up for it, I did, my, I did a recent episode on September 11th. My, it was the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And I talked about my September 11th experience. And I've, I've it's been 20 years and I mentioned some things that I hadn't talked about because I, there was a lot of difficulty that I faced and had to overcome, but compared to people went into the building, you know, the firefighters went into the building, first responders and people signed up to defend the nation to put their lives at risk. And on, on that scale, it wasn't nothing. And so I didn't really, I felt like I didn't, I wasn't, I had no place to talk about my troubles and people who heard it and, and heard me talk about it later, were like, Josh, you should really talk about this. There's a lot there that you, okay, it wasn't as bad as them. Sounds pretty bad. Sounds like a lot. And I haven't been able to laugh at it remotely. <laughs> and maybe now with you, I'm laughing. That chuckle right there was like a, a bit of laughter. And um, I'll be sure to go check that out. And also, I, I have to reiterate something that you said. And let me hear, tell me if I got it right. That when you meet someone, you think to yourself, what troubles have they had? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a very human perspective. And yet, it's usually most people would think, oh, the guy with no legs, like, Think of how how bad it is for him, and yet he's thinking the other way. I am, and to a certain extent, it might come from a place of a little twinge of guilt, only in the sense, like, okay, here I am sitting, like I said, like incredibly fortunate, had this amazing experience in Japan. You know, I get to come into the, you know, come in and talk with you about, you know, the the state of the world, which is really enjoyable. And then, you know, I might go out and roll. I'm having a great day. Is the bottom line. I'm having a great day. I'm having a great month. This is a this is a this is a high high water mark for Blake this month. And you know, I could go rolling down the sidewalk and someone see me and be like, oh man, you know, that guy, poor guy. And that's a very reasonable, empathetic position to take, I suppose. But you know, the fact of the matter is maybe their, you know, maybe their relative has COVID and they don't know how it's going. Maybe they, maybe they've worried about getting sick. Whatever the case is, there are a million scenarios in which. I could make a pretty good objective case, I think, that they're having a worse day than I am, but they don't know that. And having seen that so many times, it's like, how many times do you have to hear those stories and know that before you just say, you know what, I can't, I don't have enough information to cast this grand moral judgment on the state of this person's life. And they, they don't on mine either, but 
it makes me want to go a lot slower and be a lot more empathetic. And that's probably, that's honestly, that's not something I'm good at by nature. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that that was something I was blessed with from birth, but it's something I've hopefully grown into. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think about, and I I got into it a little bit. I, I know in that Ted talk, there's something to be said for keeping perspective on your suffering. And something I know we've, a book we've both read is the man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl, which is hugely impactful. And I would certainly recommend to anyone and reading that, you know, the, the first part of the book is him discussing his time in Auschwitz. I mean, for goodness sake, like, okay, I had two legs cut off and that was unfortunate, but you know, I was certainly well taken care of and everyone around me intended to compare those things almost as embarrassing mm-hmm. in some sense to me, it feels that way, but you know, my amputations are still bad and we still have to deal with those. And so compare and minimize only goes so far, I guess is what I would say that there are real traumas, big and small and perspective is a good thing, but you know, small, small hurts and, and small, small struggles are still struggles. And I really am not comfortable, you know, minimizing, you know, someone's, someone's experience. There's a great, the best I've ever heard this described and I'm going to butcher it, but there's in, in one of C.S. Lewis's books, he gets, who's an author I've really gotten a lot out of. He describes moral judgment of one person to another. And he uses the example, and of course he was a world war one veteran and had gone, you know, just seen a lot of horrible things. And he said, it might be the case that, uh, what, did he, what did he say? He says, it might be the case that, you know, in, in God's eyes, the, the person who has a phobia of cats and goes and picks up a cat in the middle of the road to keep it from being run over and being saved, lifted a greater moral weight than the man who won the Victoria Cross, you know, won the Medal of Honor to save a comrade in the middle of battle. Because for whatever reason, there was, that man was just wired differently. And so the thing that was deep inside of him, the thing that really chose wasn't actually working as hard. And that's just a hypothetical. But I, that, when I read that for the first time, I think I was in college, it just knocked me over because I've been very fortunate in a lot of ways. I think I told you, I don't, I've never struggled with depression or, or suicidality or anything like that. And I, again, I'm not even close to an expert, but I don't think there's, you know, I don't, I just don't get the sense I'm chemically predisposed to it, which that's not, you know, that's not a virtue. That's not me out here doing the, you know, trying to lift some moral weight. That's just how I'm wired. And so anyway, that, that perspective I try and come back to, and I'm really not very good at it. I'm not just saying that I catch myself all the time, but when I'm trying to really learn about someone else and empathize and understand who they are as a person, I always try and come back to that because I think, I think that's sort of a good square one. I don't know. Does that, does any of that, like I've probably taken you so far away from the original point you were trying to make. I'm sorry, Josh. I'm not trying to make a point. It's so much as get a perspective that's beyond mine. That, and I think beyond anyone's. When I'm listening to you, I think about some of the things that I would call my troubles, and just what you described about you compared to Viktor Frankl. I'm thinking about compared to you and Viktor Frankl also, and I'm thinking, how serious are these problems of mine? Can I make light of them? Can I joke about them? I mean. I did another episode recently that was the two, two big chips on my shoulder. And one of them is that my parents just don't understand me. And it's a little more deep than that, but it's like, it's frustrating to like the two people who, you know, they love me, they support me, but on certain important things, I feel like terribly misunderstood. But the other one is that every time that I share that I have problems, I'm going to overstate this. I'm more going to be like sharing from feelings than, than actual factual, like 
I'm not going to try to recollect specific cases, but a lot of times when I say, oh, I got these problems, or I did something, or how about if I did something really big, like I ran a marathon, or I got a PhD in physics, they're like, yeah, you're straight white male. The world is for you. That's how things work. It's like, yes, it wasn't much of, an, of this thing. And if I say I've, I got problems, I often say, well, yeah, you, you may think you have problems. Actually, they're not that bad. And through no fault of your own, you don't realize this, but you're actually making it more difficult for others. You're actually part of the problem. Right. And I'm like, oh, geez. Like, I, one of the things I've learned is like, don't share my problems. And now, would I rather have this situation or lose my legs? <laughs> I think I prefer this situation. You know, it's, <laughs> I feel like I can see where you're coming from. And I mean, to be, you know, amputations aside, I, I have this, I have the same, I can tell you, I, I struggle with the same, same things. How do I fit in the world? How do I, you know, stack up the things that, to be honest, I've struggled a little bit, maybe the other direction in the, in the sense of, well, you know, that guy doesn't have his legs. So anything he does is just awesome. Yeah. That's, you see, you, is that really you, what, you know what I mean? It's like, to your point, I, I do think this is, I can't tell you how many times I've had this discussion with, and most of my friends are males. So I, I don't mean to draw a broader conclusion. I'm sure it affects everybody, but a lot of guys where we say, they go through this conversation. They say, okay, well, I don't know really where my struggle fits in compared to the X, Y, and Z. And how do I, how do I rank order that? And I, I end up thinking that it's just such a suffocating view of the world to say, because anytime someone says, well, anything Blake does is great, which there are definitely those people out there. It robs me of authentic achievement because, you know, one of the reasons I mentioned this earlier was it vindicating. Yeah. The silver medal was a relief because it was an objective grade point that said, I was good enough that day. I was a good enough athlete to get that done on that day. And I don't need someone like, I, I don't need, I'm not great on the curve. I don't need someone to tell me. I don't, I don't need pat it on the head. I don't need the encouraging word. That's, that is really good evidence. You know, the, the head classifier came and it wasn't like rowing where, you know, your disability made the difference. The, the chief referee came up to our team, team leader and said, I think Blake's the most, she said, I think Blake's the most disabled guy in that race. And which kudos to them, they wrote the rules correctly, but that was really important to me. And that didn't, it didn't rob me of the opportunity to achieve and to be my best and to go after something hard. And conversely, to your point, if, if we just keep knocking the pins out from under, under people and attributing their success to circumstance, then it's like, none of us are entirely responsible for our own success, but we're not like, Neither is circumstance entirely responsible for our own success. And I know there's a, that's a much deeper nature versus nurture discussion, but I think you can fall off either side of that road. And it's such a suffocating view, I think, you know, to say, well, everything's your fault or nothing's your fault. It's like, there's no room in either of those views for growth, in my opinion. There's no, there's no room for maximization saying, you know what, man, get out of bed and do the most you can do today. And the most you can do is the most you can do, and then do it again tomorrow. And then after a few days, that's going to compound and see, just see eventually when you wake up where you're at, you know what, that's going to be good enough. And anyway, now I'm really on my soapbox, but I, I guess you've kind of gotten a reaction out of me here because, you know, to your point, I mean, you've got, and I, you know, when, when you email me, I'm like, this is awesome. Like, look what this guy's done. You have three Ted talks, the guy's road crashed, which for the record I was saying earlier, like placing there at crash beat i've raced in crash bees too it's the world indoor rowing championships and that's a very good placement so josh is saying he was a participant when it was a very good outcome but anyway i i do have this reaction of saying like it you know it, 
We shouldn't be robbing this person of things that are really laudable. And that happens a lot. I have that conversation a lot. And I, I, I gotta say, as you can probably tell, I'm, it bothers me, but anyway, that's a, am I at all close to kind of the, the, the sense you were, you were sharing? I don't mean to, you know, bulldoze through your, your thought there. No, I, I mean, I purposely make this podcast conversational style, not interview style. When I said just being a great athlete is not, that alone is not what I'm looking for. I mean, to me, to be a great athlete, it is very interesting. Actually, I was really happy that um, I was recently looking up one of my guests and he was uh, an NFL, he's now in the Jacksonville Jaguars and I was looking him up and he's like, he caught a touchdown pass the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I was like, that's really cool. So kind of thrown behind him and I'm just trying to think of crossing the ends, crossing the, the, into the end zone. That's gotta be an amazing feeling in the NFL. And gotta be pretty incredible. Right. Yeah. And he went to some like not big name school. And so it was like difficult to get in and Jacksonville. I think, I think they've lost three games, but actually the last game, the other team, who was it? They, they went for, I think a 68 yard field goal. And so his teammate, it was on track aim wise, but not, didn't have the distance. So the, his teammate caught it in the back of the end zone and ran it in for touchdown. And they still lost the game, but like that must be amazing to go 109 yards for a touchdown. Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah like, the old, I'm thinking back to the old kick six of Auburn and Alabama of years ago. But, but no, yeah, what a, like, yes. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I totally agree. Like, that's, those are just interesting experiences. But you had something different. It was like that TEDx talk. It was, it was when I saw that, did you get what, when I wrote about Churchill's speeches? Did you get the connection of why, of the value to sustainability and, I mean, life on earth? Yes. I, well, I think I did. And you can tell me, I mean, one, I'm a big, big fan of Churchill's. The man was hardly perfect, but I, I think to, to your point, he was certainly the right man for a given job at a given time. Mm-hmm. And the ability to persevere in, as you indicated, a purely what, what looks for all the world to be a hopeless situation. I mean, and, and it wasn't, you know, of course, it wasn't just him. There were folks around him. I mean, what? What's that? One of my favorite lines by him is he says, never has so much been owed by so many to so few. Mm-hmm. When he's talking about the Battle of Britain and the, you know, these 20 year old pilots that have like 10 hours of flying experience and are holding off the best air force in the world every day. I mean, t- like, you know, sometimes I, it, well, yes, I understand that. Sometimes I think, and I had, you know, my, my grandfather and his brother were both, were, were both World War II veterans. And his brother in particular was in Patton's army and ended up with like, a slew of like things like five bronze stars and purple heart, like was in Northern Europe the whole time. And, you know, I'm, I love history and I'm kind of a war nerd anyway, but, but I, I think sometimes like, what would it take to, to walk onto that beach? Like what, cause you can't, like, I don't think you can possibly imagine yourself into that situation, but to your point, like here we are, we are in Britain about to be invaded. You know, our tiny Island home is surrounded and, like what, how do you get out of bed that day? How do you say, well, here we are, we're going to, and it's not hyperbolic. I think even at the time say, well, here I am at, you know, 17, 18, 19, I've got a gun and a helmet and I have to get across this beach. Like you just, that's not, that's not in my universe. That's not something I will ever have to do, but they did. And, be, and not only, not only that, but because they did, and I, I'm, I'm making a long point to end up agreeing with you, but like because they did that, I get to have the opportunity to say, "Hey, you know what? That flag that went up for that silver medal, I put that one up, but it exists for a reason, and I know why." And that's that's a privilege I've been 
given and gifted. So that's something that inspires me. But but no, I I, I certainly have those those moments of saying, wow, we we really feels like we're hemmed in on all sides. You know, there's a great quote by I think it's Chesty Polar, who was in Korea, one of the Marine generals in Korea. He says, you know, you know, excellent. We, they've got us surrounded. We can fire in any direction, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's kind of one of those situations. And to, drawing drawing back to your point around sustainability and life, and how do we live in the world? How do we, you know, how do we? What is the good life? You know, we could, we could go all the way back to like I heard somebody say that all of Western philosophy is just footnotes to Plato, mm-hmm. and he's probably right. But you know, how do we? get back to this. First of all, how do we define the good life? Right. I mean, that that's, you know, if existence precedes essence, then that question has to come first. What do we think the good life is? Have we even, do we even have a working definition of that as a society? And I'm not convinced we do, although I get the sense you and I are going to have a pretty similar view of what that is. And then to say, okay, fine. Once, once we've chosen what that seems to be, what, like, how do, how do we do it? And I, and I, I share your feeling and certainly around the, you know, life sustainability, the rest of it feels like we're kind of hemmed in from all sides here. Like you really can't do, feels like it's, it's hard to do anything right. And it's very tempting. It's tempting for me. I, I won't speak for anyone else, but it's tempting for me to just say, bag the whole thing. Like I'm going to go sit in my basement and watch Netflix because it doesn't seem to make a difference one way or the other. That's a very tempting way forward. I probably shouldn't admit that, but it's true. And yeah, I just, that, that did resonate with me when you said that it's like, it's, it's very hard. I think when the problem seems so big and, you know, I was again, you know, to return the fact, I I felt like your last Ted talk was really, really great in this. And and I feel like you did a great job of zooming in to how it impacts your life and then zooming out to how it impacts much bigger narratives and things that these issues are so they're complicated and they're big, but big issues have only ever been started by being solved by small people. And that's, that's the kind of fight we have to fight every day. And, you know, in my case, I, you know, I kind of had to sink or swim, you know, after my amputations, but I do think you can extrapolate that into the unknown, right? Like we don't know. know, There are so many, I mean, I don't need to tell, tell the physicists the, you know, how the universe is stochastic. That's true. But <laughs> anyway, I, yeah, I, that was something that really, it was one of the reasons I wanted to come on and chat with you to hear, hear your perspective on where you think the, the path forward is and, and the, you know, how we go about making small decisions that end up compounding. And of course I've con- consumed a lot of your media <laughs> media. So I, I feel like I probably know where that answer is going, but no, I, I, I don't know. I mean, is that as you, as, as you operate in the world and again, with your background, do you see more people that are kind of saying, Hey, I don't like, I don't know how to solve this problem, but I know how to put the first piece of the puzzle together. Or is it more, do you get a sense people are becoming more and more resigned to whatever imagined future they, they believe is coming to exist? First, I, the people who have the most impact are the people who have the most resources. The people who have the most resources are the people who also are polluting the most. I talk about how we need to say how 7.9 billion people have to change their behavior for us to reverse, you know, to live sustainably as a species. But actually, fewer than a billion are the ones who are polluting way more than everybody else. Now, crazily, you would think someone who's living on the margin, it's going to be much harder for them to pollute less because everything they do is so closer to necessary. Whereas someone who's got mansions and yachts and and airplanes, they could probably trim, there's a lot more fat for them to trim, so it's going to be easier for them. In my experience, it's the opposite. The people who have the most feel it's the hardest for them to change. Hmm. That, I mean, the way that I've come to see it is that the people who 
who use the most heroin are the most addicted and therefore feel like it's the hardest to get rid of. So oh, that's interesting. That I mean, on this podcast, I ask, I haven't done it with you and I probably won't because of time, but although I'd love to have it back for a second episode, but I, I walk people through to share their environmental values and to act on it in some way. And I haven't done a scientific survey here, but my gut feeling tells me that the people who've done the most already are the fastest to come up with something more to do. Mm. If you think there's a checklist of things to do, like I got to, okay, I got to become vegetarian. I got to carpool. I got to stop flying. Then you think, well, there's a certain number of things I got to do and then I'm done. I'm finding that it's much more sustainability is a set of values they live by. And when you choose, when you make that switch, there's no end to it. It's a set of skills to live by that the more you practice the skills, the better you get at practicing them so that the people who do them the most have the most to do. So when I train people in the technique that I use, the Spodok method of how to start living sustainably and how to lead others to, when I teach it to people, if I do a workshop and there's an odd number of people, I get paired up with someone. So I walk them through to come up with something that they can do to act on their values, but then they do it back to me. So I've done this dozens and dozens and dozens of times where people are like, what can you do? And most people look at me like, oh, you're so extreme. I'm like, I'm not even close to, I'm barely getting started because people think that it's a burden that, you know, if you have this vision of a Star Trek future where we have these dilithium crystals that just produce everything you ever need, then you kind of need to do, you know, you got to have oil that'll get you a fission, that'll get you a fusion, that'll get you to the next thing. And we just, you know, the, we just have this future. We, we got to do whatever it takes to get there is worth it. Right. And that makes living sustainably a, a step back to the Stone Age. It's a disaster. Right. And my experience, that's, that was me, right? I had a PhD in, I still have a PhD in physics, an MBA. I'd started companies. I knew what it took to, you know, patent things, bring them to market, get the funding, get them going. It's challenging, but it's rewarding. And it's great. And it's fun. And it makes life better. And and I certainly felt that only governments and corporations could make a difference on the scale that we needed. And then I started actually acting and it changed everything that, you know, the, the conversation I got on just before talking to you was for my fourth TEDx talk, I was talking to the organizer and that'll come in November. And he specifically invited me to propose and I got in oh, excellent. because he knew that I wouldn't fly there, Huh? that I would only, I mean, I can do it remotely. That's a new change that you can do it remotely, but I would only, I would only sail there because it's in England. <laughs> and he said, that's why we thought of you. And, you know, when I challenged myself to go for a year without flying, I thought it was going to be the worst year of my life. I thought it would be terrible. And uh, it was only a couple months in before I started recreating the things that I lost. And you know, for year after year, I was like, oh, one more year, one more year. And I was just like, I don't think I'll fly again. Why would I do that? Why? It's having lived it. Now, here's, what, here's the chip on my shoulder. Everyone is like, oh, well, you can, but I can't. Either you're special and it made enable it enabled you, or I'm special and it's impossible for me to change. And there's nothing special about me in this area. Ah, crap. When I say nothing, everyone's like, ah, there is something. So I'm pretty much within a standard deviation. I think on most counts, I'm like, I have family that lives over this far away. My my income depended on it. I grew up thinking that that's how you get cultural exchange. But then I started realizing if I wanted adventure, I'd have to create it, and I did. If I wanted connection to family, I have to create it, and I did. If I wanted an income, I'd have to figure out how to do it. And I did. And then when I created it myself, it was of more value to me. And I got more adventure. And I got more connection with family. Now, I try to tell this to people, and I'm still learning how to convey it to people. Now, this, this argument that I was having with the... I don't want to say argument. It was good-natured. It was a, a more like a debate of kind of... I mean, and I've been reading some stuff lately that says that 
renewables are much more dependent on fossil fuels than I thought. Yeah. Which is to say that they're probably not very sustainable. And I was telling him how I'm now more concerned than before. And he was saying, well, what are you going to do otherwise? And it took a while going back and forth until I said, you know, what I'm doing is actually, I think, so I've dropped my, my CO2 emissions and pollution in general, according to the online calculators. I went from probably higher than the average American to probably something about 90, 95% less. My health, longevity, control over my career, time with family, all up, all up. And I spend less, I mean, I buy from the farmer's market. Yes, I have access to it, but that's what we have to, if you don't have access to one, everyone's like, oh, we can't do it. But when I had a single mom from a food, from a food desert come to talk to her about this stuff, and she was a guest on this podcast, she invited me up to the Bronx and I showed them what I do. And they said, we can do that. And she, she said, you know, it'll take us time. It, you know, you, you planted the seeds, but we can do this. This is what we needed. And so the accessibility is very high, but so there's a chip on my shoulder to talk about that. But one alternative is if everyone drops by something like 90%, now some can't, if they're on the margin, it's impossible to drop your oil consumption, say, but the people who need to drop the most, the people who have the most, they have the most, they can drop 99%. And I, that's going to be all trimming fat. That's going to be all improving their lives, but everyone views it as a shit show. Everyone views it as this is the worst thing to do. We've had thousands of years of progress, especially in the past couple hundred years. Fossil fuels have brought more people out of poverty, more health and longevity than anything before. Sure. We must have energy to do this. Right. Now, if the energy is unsustainable and we're living and we're just producing more and more waste all the time, and that's 10 million people a year die from breathing air, that it took us centuries of the Atlantic slave trade to hit that kind of number. Right. And that's more than the Holocaust. That's per year. Right. So that's increasing, not decreasing. Now, if renewables can fix that, great. But we have a, people are saying, like, how much more renewables we're producing? We can, our history shows that we, when we have an old energy source and we find a new one, we use both. Right. We're not tracking how much less coal we're burning, how much oil we're leaving in the ground. That's the more meaningful measure. Sure. We don't really track that. So I'm glad to see more renewables, but. We're not lower. That's not necessarily lowering the other stuff, and that doesn't seem to be lowering. And now, now I'm the one who's going on, but I'm going to keep going. No, no, I, I love it. I don't think we we didn't get into this. So I do, I do handle some of our um, energy investments here at at my job. So it's you know it's it's interesting. It's always good to hear an interesting perspective. Obviously, this is something that as a society we're having a huge conversation around. So it's a it's a quite necessary one. Which so it's always interesting, but. and beyond interesting, it's it's impactful and it's important. You know, as, as you were going through that, I had a conversation recently with someone on a friend of mine who's actually on the Olympic team, an Olympic rower. We were talking about accessibility largely, but you know, it started off as accessibility and then it turned into, you know, how do you fill your time? What do you do day-to-day basis? And as you were walking through, you know, hey, I've built this into my life that these are the things I find meaningful and rewarding, and I've had to go out and construct it, but it's it's been so important to me and it's been really beneficial he and I got into this discussion of freedom and what freedom actually means. And that we, we sort of agreed that we've screwed it up in, in America at the very least, probably in the Western world, but definitely in America where freedom is so often defined in the negative sense as a lack of restriction, right? I don't have any barriers. There are no, there are no restrictions. There are no guardrails on my behavior or my action. And that's just not true. We all live under constraint and we all live within parameters 
that either we acknowledge or we don't. But real freedom is not is one of the conclusions we came to. It's not having the ability to do anything you want. It's being able to do it's being able to maximize what you should be doing within a given system. You know, we live in a constrained world. We live with other people that have limits. We have limits ourselves. You know, we we kind of joked. We'd say it'd be very it'd be a very strange thing to say that a fish a fish on the beach is free of the ocean, right? It's true in a technical sense. It's also a dead fish. And you know, anyway, I, I just wanted to when you were when you were walking through, you know, hey, these are we've got some limits that we all need to acknowledge. The world has the literal globe has limits that uh-huh. we cannot push it past or else certain repercussions will follow. And so instead of this discussion uh-huh. revolving around, I think, I think the discussion gets hamstrung from the, from the outset when we come at it with this approach that everything is unlimited all the time. And don't tell me it isn't because I don't want to live in that world. Like you don't have a choice. Like that's, that is the world. That's the life you lead, right? Like, Everything we do, every action we take, you know, it's like, what is it? You know, if life is drinking poison, then I've got to drink it. Like, you don't have a choice whether you sacrifice something or not. But if you're lucky, you get to choose what you sacrifice. And that, like, that's the right question, right? Like, I gave up, you know, I, I gave up a lot of things to get, end up with a silver medal. I did. But man, I'm really glad I chose to give up the things I gave up because look what I got from it, right? Like, and anyway, I just, I really appreciate the way you you constructed that because I think it's a, it's a really important thing to a way to approach the problem. <laughs> I got even more. <laughs> if you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. After he and I were talking for a while, I was saying, you know, if, if what I've been reading lately is the case, so that to make solar panels, you need to make the silicon wafers that require super high temperatures that right now fossil fuels provide. And to put a windmill in the ground, you need to dig really deep, which it looks like the engineering to make battery powered trucks to do that won't work. And even if it does, we need cement, which requires fossil fuels to make. And it's possible that this future that we're going, that we're all like, oh, we got to switch to renewables. That might not even work. And now maybe it will, maybe it won't. He's saying, well, we got to try and, and keep going. But what if we try and the trying leads us to, I mean, Rockefeller and Standard Oil, they weren't saying we're trying to pollute the planet. They had no idea. What they're doing made a whole lot of sense. And they, you know, if we could go back then and say, hey, before we start Standard Oil and before we start building this whole world built on, on something that might have a big problem down the road, See, if we said to him, here's what's going to happen in 2021, would he have stopped? Would it, he probably would have said, well, we'll fix it in some other, we'll fix it. And what we came to, which is where I'm realizing as I'm writing my book, is technology augments the values of the people implementing it. I don't believe that fossil fuels are good or bad. They don't have, I don't believe that, that um, windmills are good or bad. It's they augment, they, they amplify the values of the people who are using them. 
And if we don't examine our values and live by our values, then we will use whatever, whatever positive we initially view solar panels say, then if we're just after growth and extraction and uh, efficiency, but not resilience, and if those are our values, we will end up back where we are now soon enough, just like so many times in the past. I mean, Norman Barlog, the father of the Green Revolution, in his Nobel Prize speech talked about exactly this. Like, And most of his career, after a certain point, he said, people were dying in, right in front of me, and I had, to, I had to do what it took to save their lives. But if, if that's all we do, but we don't fix what he, in his words, the population monster, he saw that he enabled a big population growth. If we provide more resources, and then we just simply grow to pass those resources, we're back where we started, but with a bigger problem. And very few people followed him up on that. And we're, it looks like we're back where what he was predicting is where we are. Whereas if we change our values first, that doesn't mean that we, that's not the finish line. That's like just pointing in a new direction. But then, then we innovate in directions for stewardship instead of, you know, instead of material growth, it's, it'd be personal growth and enjoying what we have. Instead of extraction, it would be honoring nature and, and being humble. And when you spoke oh, yeah. and you talked about your life post something that very few people, no one would want. And yet your life, as best I can tell, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're pretty happy. <laughs> and you talk about how you, uh, I had this one, one unlucky thing. Yeah. That perspective is, I think, because I think a lot of people think without fossil fuels, if we try to living sustainably would be the worst thing imaginable. And I think I could say to them, would you prefer yeah, right. living without fossil fuels? Would you, which would you prefer? Living stable, sustainably. <laughs> including stewardship and everything you did. So whenever you did something, you'd have to think about other people. Or would you, have your, would you rather have your legs cut off? I think most people would say, I'd rather think about others in what I do. I'd rather live sustainably. And well, I know this guy who got his legs cut off and he's pretty happy. And hey, no. I think that sure. your message, your message, if it resonates and gets people to, to, to adopt values that I believe that you're living by and I'm trying to live by, and you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But you endeavor to live by these values, and I think you're doing pretty well by them. That's my read. I'm sure you're depressed at times. I certainly am. But if, if your message, and based on your experience, gets out there, I think that's worth more than all the solar panels, all the windmills, because all of them, without a change in direction, without first saying, first sustainability, then how do we do it? Rather than, if we simply try to buy time, but don't change our values, history says that we're just going to use the old energy and the new one and just grow and extract and whereas if I tried to give you a message, people are going to be like, yeah, you're pretty healthy. You still got your legs, man. And uh, not that in any way I'm saying like, oh, you have an advantage of no legs. That's it's, but you've, you've faced a challenge and overcome it. And I think you might say that you, my read is that there wasn't anything in you that's like, you have a special overcoming lost legs ability that most people don't have. No, I think, I think you've nailed that. And yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you, well, and I appreciate you saying that, but it is, it's, it's an area where, as you indicated, you know, you know, if, if you walked up there and, and said exactly what I'd said in that talk, it's in my view, it's still just as true, right? Like it's not, this is, if I said, if I had lost my legs, this is what would have happened. Well, no, no, no. Well, yeah. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should put some, like you are certainly capable of it. I could say that, but I, like, well, you know what I mean is like that, you know, the worldview piece of it, right? Like the. You know, is is this a get to or a have to? 
you know, to, to your point, like, and I, I do feel this little twinge of guilt sometimes, not guilt, but it's, you know, is, is there anything to your point? Is there anything special about, you know, was Blake born with a, you know, overcoming losing his legs gene? Well, no, I don't think there's a big indication of that, although you could parse that down more thinly, but uh, no, I, I don't think that's true. Nor, nor does Blake have a gene that, you know, says, well, Blake has a better ability to learn from this tragedy than someone else may have. So we ought to listen to him. I mean, maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's true partially because I don't think I've ever had an original thought. Uh, And I don't, I don't think that's that I'm, I'm being very honest about that. Like, I feel like I've picked things up along the way that were very useful and very helpful. But anyway, coming back to your point of, you know, oh, well, it's coming from me or it's coming from someone else, you know, something I've been leery of in my own life is figuring out, okay, am I, Am I distrusting the information in the statement or am I distrusting the source? And, you know, for me, um, yeah, you know, I've, it, until you point it, it's sort of a, it's sort of a sad thing to say, but it is in, in a sense, you know, it, yeah, it gives you credibility to say, well, okay, I can speak to losing a limb with some authority because, you know, obvious reasons, um, they're not growing back, but you know, that doesn't mean the, the lessons that are extrapolated from them are any less meaningful because they come from a different different place. And I, I, you know, I'll tell you too, I guess I kind of just think those are excuses where it's like, well, let me, you know, let me straw man this one. Let me, uh, let me, let me add hominem this one where it's like, well, because so-and-so said it, I don't need to take it seriously. It's like, well, yeah, but if it's true, like I, you know, I I would imagine as a physicist, although, you know, physics, it'd be interesting to hear your take on this. I have a a staunchly objective. I'm an objectivist when it comes to truth. I do think that, you know, truth with, with a capital T exists and it's in some sense knowable. And it's in many senses independent of the mind conceiving of it. So uh, anyway, that's an argumentative starting point, but I, I think it's coming through and I think we could, we could all do better by getting back to that presupposition. Do you describe your experience as a tragedy? How do you describe it? Huh. I mean, at one point you described it, you said there's one unlucky situation. Yeah. Huh. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, yeah, I would, I would describe it. I, I would honestly, I would describe it as more of an accident than anything else. A tragic accident. For sure, like you know, I don't. I don't think people were supposed to go through life with only two limbs. That's why you start with four. You know, like I think there's a purpose to things, and that's not it. And that's that's unfortunate. So yeah, I guess I, I guess I would say it's it's tragic in many in many ways. Certainly painful, and it was you know it was hard on me. It was hard on people around me. On and on it goes. But it wasn't. I guess I would say this. It was tragic, but it wasn't a pure tragedy. Right, like I don't, I don't know what's your view of uh, what do they call it, theodicy of the the problem of good, problem of evil. How do you resolve the problem of good and evil in the world? Do you believe such things exist? And then, if so, how do you reconcile that such things are are real? And I have one. It's not all that well formed, but I do believe that that suffering is redemptive and that there is a purpose to it. Even though I think it's very unlikely we will know what it was at the time. I think there is, there can, there is, and can be a purpose to Frank will get to this in, in more obtuse ways, maybe, but I'm a great believer in that. And I think that you could use certainly faith as a word for it, hope also, but I think all, for me, all that gets wrapped up in, into one ball. As I look back at what happened to me, I can say honestly, well, partially maybe because of how life's gone, but for me, but maybe not that these things you just, that we don't know at the time you know, calling them evil or good or good for evil. It's an awfully heavy lift. And I don't know that we really, we really have the resources to, to get into that for ourselves. So 
I walk away from it. I don't walk away from it. I, uh, I come away from it thinking, um, you know what they got to watch my puns, man. My, are, are the, so many, so many English expressions revolve around feet. Yeah. It's just, it's really frustrating sometimes, but that's a different point. I, you know, I get, I, my takeaway from it is there's a lot to be learned and that I do think things will end up being better for having witnessed or experienced a piece of suffering than had that piece of suffering never existed. Yeah. Unearned suffering is redemptive. Uh, I think Martin Luther King yeah. said in, uh, I have a dream. Very speech. true. He certainly said oh, yeah, yeah. He, in, it's definitely attributed to him. Um, also, I've heard all suffering is redemptive, I think was in that speech. And um, I mean, talk about a meaningful thing to say too, right? Like, I mean, for goodness sake. And the message that I've generally been giving is that if you try to live sustainably, you're going to be glad you did. And I want to bring people to that. And you're, people look at me living sustainably and they say, I don't get it. it. There's something that I've lost touch with of how, cause I probably would have said the same thing before. If someone, if you brought me of 2010 to here and said, look at this guy and didn't know, and didn't know it was me, a, fu- a future him. I think he'd say like, Oh, it's too bad. Cause he's not going to get to travel all around the world. And he's not going to get to eat all the restaurants around and he's not going to get to make all the money that he could if he, otherwise, but there's no way that I would switch to, it would be lovely to live in a world with, the you know the laws of thermodynamics didn't happen. Pollution, you could just snap your fingers and it would go away. But I don't live in that world. I live in this world. As far as I can tell, we can't burn fossil fuels without pollution. I have a question on, on like on that front. When you and I, I don't know where I shake out on this, but you know how people debate, you know, how much control do we have over what we want to want? Right. Like some people say, well, we want what we want, and that's just what we're born with. And then you know, some people might say, Yeah, but I can I can shift that a little for you. Do you when you, you know, when you shifted your lifestyle was what, what was the thing? Like, what was the governor in, in you that said, okay, this is, this is the switch I'm going to, was it like, okay, I'm going to throw this switch because intellectually I realized this is a commitment that my presuppositions are leading me to and my commitments are leading me to, or was it, was it a little deeper than that? Was it, was it more of a, like a fundamental shift of, of desire that then you said, okay, Hey, how do I manifest this in the world? But does that question even make sense? Yeah, it wasn't so philosophical as that. It, I mean, there are a few things. I'll give some very broad outline of it. Is that growing up, I always knew, you know, I saw the crying Indian ad or public service announcement of, you know, the tier. I knew about global warming and sea level rise. And it was abstract. Oh, that's an issue, but didn't affect my life. And, you know, I would generally take the subway over a taxi and I'd ride my bike over either to the extent I could. And I didn't, you know, I generally try to avoid polluting, but I was average American in terms of my pollution. Now, over the years, I'd, I'd stopped eating meat early in college, uh, and then somewhere along the line, stopped hydrogenated oils, stopped corn syrup. And so I'd, I'd done these experiments with eating, stopping eating things. Of course, these were all about me, not about others, my health. Well, the animal stuff, there's some animal stuff in there too, but then one time I, cha- I challenged myself to go for a week without buying a packaged food because I could take responsibility for my garbage. And that sledding hill, my garbage went up on someone else's sledding hill. I, I was realizing like how long plastic existed. And even if it, went, even if it was recycled, it burned, it was pollution. So the physical shift of now it takes me two years to fill up a load of garbage. It went from one week, a load of garbage per week, and to two weeks, and to a month, and two months, and six months, and a year. That's the numbers. But what really happened was the internal change of 
the expectation, why were my expectations so far off? Why did I think it was going to be so horrible when it was actually, would it end up being so great? And that poised me to challenge myself to go for a year without flying, which I thought, I wonder if that pattern's going to hold. And when that held, and then other people started doing it also, like picking up litter, I pick up litter. So this guy, Jay, I was just telling him about how I do that. And he started picking up litter. And on his own, he started cut, curbing his meat intake. And he lifts, so he wanted to make sure his macros were okay. It wasn't like some trivial thing. He just stopped it, stopped eating meat. He was like, he had to figure out what to do. And I saw that others could, and that, I saw no one experiencing joy or sharing that they, like no one's trying, no one's living it. And that's where I saw the opening, not the opening, the missing piece is actually the anti, the opposite of an opening in my, in my perspective, because I thought, I thought there's no Mandela of the environment. And I, I looked around, is there some place that I can volunteer, that I can work for, Greenpeace, whatever, can I do something that is showing this is going to be awesome? And nowhere did I see that message. So I realized I got to share this message that we're going to like it. And this is the emotions, the meaning behind it. So when you were saying, when you said, I forget what you said, my switch is not, is partially what to do, but it's really the meaning behind these things, the purpose, the, see, I'm not going to fly to Thailand, where Thai food is my favorite food. The only way I'm going to get there is to fly, is to sail there. And it may never happen, but I hope to sail across the Pacific. In the meantime, I'm buying foods at the, fi- at the farmer's market. I'm not getting the stuff that's shipped in from California because that's packaged and I don't want it. So that means February, March, there's no green leafy vegetables in the farmer's market here. I got turnips, radishes, rutabagas, and, and beets, and parsnips. Now, I don't like bland and I don't like Taste, not tasting good, but I don't want to pollute. And it occurs to me that people have lived here for tens of thousands of years and they, they lived. Right. And some might say, oh, they were dying at age 30 or something like that. So I'm going to live with what's here. So it occurs to me as I'm for several, I'm, I'm what, eight, seven or eight years into this. For the beginning, I wasn't, I was still buying the stuff at the stores. So I'd still get the green leaf vegetables and other stuff. But over the years, I'm buying less and less stuff from the stores and only stuff that's around here. Now I'm learning to ferment so I can get uh, and sprout. So I can, I can sprout beans and get greens in the winter. And I can, I'll start getting a whole lot of cabbage and, and making sauerkraut and fermented stuff so I can keep stuff longer. Oh, because I'm also refrigerating less too. Because that's a whole other level. Sure, sure, sure. But I unplug my fridge. The past two winters, I've been unplugging my fridge and just using my windowsill as the oh, refrigerator interesting. and fermenting things. And Actually, I learned about fermentation from Vietnam, hmm. which is much hotter, right? They don't have cold. So anyway, when I make stuff from only local things, I actually feel more connected to people in other places that are cooking with what's there. So I might not be tasting the Senegalese food or the Thai food, but I'm, I feel more connected to them than if I flew there and for a week went to the starred restaurants or even tried to find the ones that were like off the beaten path. That's like going to the zoo. That's not experiencing other cultures. Because hmm. find someone who wants to, in America, as I see it, and maybe I'm seeing something differently than others would, people are like, oh, I want to experience other cultures. Go for a winter eating only what grows around where you are. There's another culture. Because I bet I can go to almost any store near me and 12 months out of the year, I can buy a mango. Right. And I ask people around me, when was the last time you bought a turnip? <laughs> Virtually zero. So in actual practice, the turnip is the more exotic thing. Yeah, interesting point. So, but why don't they do the exotic thing and, and try to cook their own turnips? 
Some do. I hope many listeners of this podcast are cooking their own food or discovering it. Or, you know, everyone's making all this um, fake meats and all the fake... Um, I was writing someone about this. I'm kind of I came across someone who... A recipe to f- fermenting cashews into making a, a cheese. Because I don't want to get the vegan cheeses that are... It, it looks pretty industrial to me. But I'm really curious to... Ferment, like, I love fermenting. Oh, my God. I had no idea. And people who've been doing it their whole lives are like, oh, Josh is late to the game. It's like... Welcome to the club. Okay, so I'm late to the game. But when I first unplugged my fridge and I was like, uh-oh, wait, I got all this stuff in the freezer. What am I going to do? Because I realized like, if I tried to plan it out, I would plan forever. I just got to unplug it and then figure it out. So I threw a bunch of fruit and peppers and stuff and made a chutney. I've never tasted so much flavor in anything that I've made before. And I just threw the stuff together and threw, threw a little salt in there and let it happen. It was really, really good. So this is an example of I'm getting more cultural exchange, more cuisine, more experience of these things. And having the stuff handed to us, I think, I don't know if while we, was, while we were recording or was before when you said depression is a, um, how'd you put it? Depression is a- Depression is a luxury good. Having everything you want, whenever you want it, however you want it, no matter who suffers for it, I don't think is a route to happiness. And yet heroin users and other addicted people, the last thing they want, they just do not want to let go of that regular- dependable hit. Right. And you can tell them all you want. You're actually going to prefer exercise, a healthy diet, earning a, a living instead of turning tricks or stealing, or whatever. They're like, no, I know you square. Yeah, you right. think you're, you're just trying to, maybe they know it somewhere deep inside. And I'm, I'm, lear- I'm, I'm trying to learn how to convey that we're going to like this shift, that the option of living sustainably first then if we can build some windmills and try to build up the power supply that we used to have and restore all the things that we like, then that way works. We know that way works. We know that we can live sustainably because for most of human history, we did. And you might say, well, we need the GDP to grow. Actually, we don't because there's plenty of societies. In my book, I talk about Hawaii, for example, for something like a thousand years, they lived without contact with the rest of the world and they live stably. And Without that is to say, without exponential growth, and and that's one culture among many many cultures that live that way, and it seems like there's a route that we know works, and yet we keep choosing the hit of like maybe this maybe this time it'll work out. Like we keep ignoring the unintended side effects, and somehow somehow I'm living in a world in which what's normal and natural and easy is to split the atom and to fuse atoms and to go to Mars and to have one child per family for a couple generations until we're down to a sustainable level is somehow impossible. And I've met a lot of families. I've never seen a family with one child with less love than any other size family. So people are like, oh, I don't talk about population because that's like a little t- tough for people to handle. But I don't know. I was talking to uh, a guy, evangelical guy, and I pointed out how, like, imagine you go to the beach, look at all those grains of sand. Imagine for every grain of sand on that beach and every other grain of sand on every beach in the world, suddenly they all became people or one person for each one of those. They wouldn't fit. When it was prophesied, you'll have as many descendants as grains of sand on the beach. I think not all at once. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I. You've got to reach, it's got to happen over time. And if you, you're going to mess that up if you try to, ha- if you try to make it all at once. You're going to undo the prophecy. Well, that's very well said. You know, it is funny. The uh, and I've I've had this conversation with a few people. Say, well, you know, the 
you know, yeah, the promise to Abraham, you know, the, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. Yeah, well, before that, you know, God told Adam to take care of the garden. <laughs> you know, like there's no, if we're going to be, to your point, to be, if we're going to be consistent, if we're going to treat the text with consistent, if we're going to take Genesis at face value, then, which is a debatable thing, what the face value is. And I, I get that, but like, you know, the, the first, the orig- there were originally like two commandments. Don't eat fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good. Don't define good and evil for yourself and take care of the garden I gave you. The second commandment never went away. Like, anyway, this is a whole different, this is a whole different yeah. discussion. I can give you my whole view on this, but like the, you know, no, you're supposed like we were built to be to, to, the word stewardship. Like we're, I believe we were built to be stewards of the resources, use the resources, right? Like, I don't think, you know, there's, that's a part of it, but you know, give an account of thy stewardship, but thou mayest no longer be steward. Right. That also applies to the natural world. So no, I, I think that's a, I think, yeah, I, I think that's kind of square one. To be, and this is a whole, we could go on and on about this, but I, I don't, and I don't mean to, I, I mean, I think your point around, you know, yeah, there's, yeah, we can have descendants grains of sand on the beach, but like not all at once and not all in the same place. Cause that's, yeah. that's going to be self-defeating. They're not all going to be your descendants for very long. <laughs> so. And I think that you have the ability, I think anyone can say it, but people will hear it differently from you of, you know, we really wanted things to work out a certain way. <laughs> something happened. It didn't work out that way. Yeah. That's life. And, you know, Mark Zupan in his book, I forget if we were recording, but who he was in the movie murder ball and he, um, he lost, he still has his limbs, but he can't use them as much. Fairly high level quadriplegic, I think. And, you know, he was like, I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk. And then one day he was like, I'm not going to walk. And that was the new beginning. And to say, I think that's that message is I believe that message is much more important than the technology of how to split the atom or how to get solar in the middle of the desert and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a I'm so glad you brought that up. And I I'm I apologize, I've got to, I do have to run by one, but maybe just to to kind of put a you know pin in that in my own life, I think and I don't know if you ran across this, but you know, you're you're on the rowing machine, you've you've rowed, you you'll certainly understand this analogy. When I got sick, I did not ever want to row again. And it was because it's like, okay, here's my view of the ideal situation and I can't get there. So I don't want to have anything to do with it. And to a certain extent, that was true. I can't row right in an able-bodied stroke. And that's a very different thing than what I can do now. But a few years after that, right after college, I needed to work out and I realized there's, okay, here's a constraint. You have to be fit. You don't have to be, but my view, you have to be, you know, you've got to find a way to exercise. You've got to find a way to be better. Okay, well, a rowing machine is really good for that, especially for someone with a disability. So, okay, I got the seat and I'll bolt it down. And anyway, the point is I had to let go of this idealized version of something in order to get over myself. And it was really getting over myself to start doing this other thing. And this other thing that I ended up getting, I mean, it's totally changed my life in many ways. And that's para rowing and getting into it. But first I had to accept that this, this isn't going to be the way I wanted it. And that was a very hard thing for me to do. I was not a real fun person to be around for a couple months. And my dad even said at one point, he's like, you know, it might be best if you just don't treat this like rowing at all. If you just say, this is an entirely new thing that you can enjoy and benefit from and grow in, but separate it from what you've done in the past. That might be better. And he was right. That was hugely, hugely impactful. And because that, that was a shift in mindset that I had to get over that really changed 
I mean, again, to, to, it's it's going to be hard to overstate the change in trajectory on my life that that had. But anyway, I think I'm I'm really glad. It's it's interesting to hear you say that, and I, I appreciate your construction of it because I just think that's so fundamental to so many things things in life, and certainly the impact we have on other people. So looking at the time, and it is, we've gone way over <laughs> my expectation. Uh, I hope people listen to this episode because sometimes when they look at it, it's long and yeah. it doesn't get to download as much. But I invite, will you come back for a second episode I'd and continue to. this conversation? I've had a great time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm obviously not uh, short for words, so <laughs> <laughs> you know, happy to come back. But no, I mean, I've I've this has been great. I really enjoyed it. Now, now I have to ask: Was that a pun? Because you're three foot two. No, but it should have been. You said I'm short for words. <laughs> oh man, there's some low hanging fruit right there, <laughs> left unpicked. Now, was that a pun? Of low hanging. No, <laughs> man, we gotta hang out more. This is, I'm off my game. <laughs> this is uh, I'm I'm relishing getting to tell these jokes that I think if I weren't saying them to you and without you here yeah. to say that's in bad taste or yeah. not, yeah, right. And then there's I can so, get it. There's, I can, I can there's so much. There's so much great comedy that's just left unsaid. <laughs> Such a shame. So I'm gonna wrap it here, and then we'll just pick up later. We'll we'll pick up here next time, and the, and the listeners will have to wait a bit. Hey, that sounds great. All right, Blake Haxton, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.